Well, hi, church. It's wonderful to be with you this morning. Um, as we continue our study of the Gospel of Luke, we have reached chapter 14, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 24 of Luke 14. Let's take a breath and prepare ourselves for the reading of the word. Now, one Sabbath, when Jesus went to dine at the house of a leader of the Pharisees, they were watching him closely. And there right in front of him was a man whose body was swollen with fluid. So Jesus asked the experts in religious law and the Pharisees, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So Jesus took hold of the man, healed him, and sent him away. Then he said to them, which of you, if you had a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? But they could not reply to this. Then when Jesus, when Jesus noticed how the guests chose the places of honor, he told them a parable. He said to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor because a person more distinguished than you may have been invited by your host. So the host who invited both of you will come to you and say, give this man your place. Then, ashamed, you will begin to move to the least important place. But when you are invited, go and take the least important place so that when your host approaches, he will say to you, friend, move up here to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who share the meal with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. He also said to the man who had invited him, And when you host a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors so that you can be invited by them in return and get repaid. But when you host an elaborate meal, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Then you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous." When one of those at the meal with Jesus heard this, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will feast in the kingdom of God. But Jesus said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time for the banquet, he sent his slave to tell those who had been invited, Come, because everything is now ready. But one after another, they all began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen, and I am going out to examine them. Please excuse me. And another said, I just got married. I can't come. So the slave came back and reported this to his master. Then the master of the household was furious and said to his slave, Go out quickly to the streets and alleys of the city and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Then the slave said, Sir, what you instructed has been done, and there is still room. So the master said to his slave, go out to the highways and the country roads and urge people to come in so that my house will be filled. For I tell you, not one of those individuals who were invited will taste my banquet. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, in this moment of silence, would you speak to us about your word?
Jesus, what, uh, what I have seen in this passage and what I hope to communicate with my brothers and sisters is your challenge to us for how we cultivate our hearts and our desires, what we're truly aimed at. Um, Lord, I ask that you have your way in the, in the preaching of this message, the preaching of the word, and that this passage would, um, would trouble us and inspire us. So we open ourselves to you now, in Jesus' name, amen. Um, one, of, one of the things that we do every Sunday that I just love so much is the generosity prayer. Um, that's something that's almost unique to Littleton Christian Church. When, when, uh, when we hired Stephen, um, he came from another church where he and a couple others had written that prayer together, and, and uh, we've, we've modified it a little bit, but it's, it's a wonderful prayer. And I, you know, it, that prayer after six and a half years or whatever, six years of praying it, uh, has shaped really the way I think about ministry. You know, we, we want to show the world what you're like. I just, I love that. Um, and, and I love the theology in it. And with this sermon in mind, as we're praying it just now, it was the first time that I had the thought um, that, oh, there's an element in which one of the lines of it isn't true. I'm not saying we're going to change it. I love it. Um, but, you know, it says, you know, I brought nothing into this world and I will bring nothing out of it. And, of course, that's talking about, in reference to that, our, our possessions, our, you know, the, the things that we have to give away. But there is something that we bring out of this world, so to speak. And that's our hearts and our desires, what, what we have shaped our longings for. And, um, and I'm going to try to repeat this idea in a few different ways, but what you really believe about what will be when everything is done shapes how you live now. What you believe about how it all sorts out, what, what perfection really is, your idea of perfection is going to shape choices that you make today. So in this passage, it's one dinner. It's one dinner scene. Jesus is around a table with the Pharisee, uh, which is wonderful. Early on, you know, Jesus has said, you know, if you want to be part of my kingdom, you got to love your enemies. And then he goes around having dinner with Pharisees, who just in the last chapter, it says those are his enemies, his opponents. I mean, the, it's become a conflict. And yet here's this Pharisee, Jesus traveling through town on his way to Jerusalem, and he's the lead Pharisee in town, uh, so he's, he's kind of the authority, the religious authority figure, and the way it works in a small town is like, well, if, you know, if Rabbi so-and-so has dinner with this teacher, he's going to check him out, and he'll let us know if he's legit or not, so it's, it's an evaluation. And Jesus accepts the invitation knowing full well that he's going to be evaluated and judged, and that's what happens. So he's, he's at this uh, dinner, and, um, but really there are three overlapping dinners being described here. There's the dinner that's actually happening, the way it is. There's, there's a dinner that's like Jesus challenges them to practice. That's the way it could be. And then Jesus tells a story about a dinner, about this banquet, and that's a picture of the way it will be, the way it is, the way it could be, and the way it will be. 
And the way it is, is shaped by what we think will be. Let's just get a scene. It's, it's a, such a, another disturbing scene. Just like those of you who heard the last passage, Jesus was in a synagogue and there was a, a, a woman dealing with a physical disability and uh, she was, you know, bent over, maybe, you know, osteoporosis or whatever, but she was badly bent over and, and Jesus healed her and there's a little conflict with the leader of the synagogue. Well, here, dinner at a religious leader's house and I don't know who invited this guy in, the guy with um, who's swollen with fluid. The older name for that is dropsy. In fact, that's that's just coming from the Greek uh, term that Luke uses, dropsy. You may have heard that. It's a kind of an old, an old way of describing. So, you know, now we know people swell from fluid like that because they're experiencing heart failure or kidney failure. You may have seen that. Uh, when, but um, the Pharisees assumed that it was a symptom not of a disease but of sin. It was, you know, they had, a, they had, you know, contracted some disease uh, from a sinful lifestyle, and that's why they were retaining fluid. And, and so the, the body is retaining water and not processing it properly. And the cruel irony of this uh, condition is that you are desperately thirsty when your body is retaining fluid like this. In fact, even in the first century, there was this saying that there's no one as thirsty as a man with dropsy. I mean, that, like, so, uh, so here's this person brought before. He's desperately thirsty. His body is miserable. And, and it's, you know, it's embarrassing. You, you, the, you're visibly sort of ostracized just by the look of you. I don't know who brought him in. You know, maybe the Pharisees brought him in to test Jesus. That's what a lot of people think. Um, maybe, maybe Jesus saw him outside and brought him in to test the Pharisees. You know, I, who knows? Um, nobody explains how the guy got to dinner. He's an unlikely guest at this dinner, especially as we start to understand what's happening at this dinner. And, uh, and gosh, the, it's, you know, the healing is quite quick. In fact, it's just three quick verbs that our translation makes a little longer, but it says Jesus embraced him, Jesus healed him, and Jesus released him. Our translation said Jesus sent him away. But that third word, Jesus released him, is the same word used of the woman uh, who had, was bent over when Jesus said she had an evil spirit and she needed to be released from the bonds of Satan. It's the same word. So it's weird that, you know, with that translations think it says he sent him away. But, you know, I just picture this like beautiful uncomfortable, intimate scene where Jesus hugs the man and as he hugs him, he whispers healing in his ear and then he opens his arms and the man is restored. I mean, that's, that's how I picture it. You know, I might be wrong, but so, all right. So here, here's what's happening at this dinner. They, Luke overtly says the Pharisees invited Jesus to test him. You know, they're trying to figure out, is this guy a heretic? Is he the true Messiah? What's the deal with him? Remember, Jesus is traveling south through Israel from Galilee down to Jerusalem where he's going to, you know, be crucified. 
And so it's a judgmental scene. I mean, the, the tone of dinner is tense. It's, uh, it's evaluation time. There's, you know, if, when that's happening, it's not just one guy who's on the hot seat. Everyone is ch checking everyone for saying the right thing and doing the right thing. You know, the, these are all sort of um, theologically articulate people who've been reading the same authorities and whatever. And so it's kind of a, this social test of one another. Um, Stephen and I had Presbytery this week, and I love Presbytery. I love being together with, with my fellow ordained ministers and, and ruling elders from throughout our region, and, um, and, and yet we do this. Like, this is what we do. We're, we're listening to, oh, are you sure that's, uh, you know, are you sure that's what you want to say there? I'm not sure that's proper theology. You know, that's, that, we don't, you know, we're nice about it usually, but. That's what happens. So it's a judgmental scene. Um, but then Jesus notices something. He notices that they're jockeying for position, right? They're trying to take the best seat at the table. You know, they, you know, they, they want to be seen as the most honored guest there. And so they're kind of competing for who gets the right seat. And so then he, he challenges them about that. And we'll, we'll get to that. But here, here's what's going on. Remember, what you think about what will be affects how you live in what is now. So the Jewish people had this picture of what will be that they called the great banquet of the Lord. It's this, it's this picture that's painted in the, the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 25. And, um, and I, I want to read it to you, this wonderful picture, Isaiah chapter 25. I think I've got it on screen. Yeah. Okay. So here's what Isaiah says. The Lord of heaven's armies will hold a banquet for all the nations on this mountain. At this banquet, there will be plenty of meat and aged wine, tender meat and choicest wine. So it's a nice dinner. On this mountain, he will swallow up the shroud that is over all the peoples, the woven covering that is over all the nations. He will swallow up death permanently. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. Indeed, the Lord has announced it. At that time, they will say, look, here is our God. We waited for him and he delivered us. Here is the Lord. We waited for him. Let's rejoice and celebrate his deliverance. I mean, that's the, wet, that's the great feast that they expect at the end of history. That's what they're longing for. But is that what they believe about what will be? Because that's a nice picture, right? That's, I mean, that sounds good. If you're um, more familiar with the New Testament, that should remind you of some of the scenes in the book of Revelation. It sounds wonderful. Every tear is wiped away, you know. There is no more suffering. It's, it's wonderful. Um, hmm. But here's what happened. Uh, as the Jewish people, you know, Isaiah is writing when there's uh, oppression, the, the Israel is either uh, be, just been exiled or about to be exiled. They've got these fierce enemies, and for the next several centuries, they are an oppressed people, and so they're trying to understand this passage from being an oppressed people, and there's this um, uh, tradition of interpreting 
the passages that developed that was kind of like creating paraphrases of the passage. You might be familiar with the message translation. That's a, a paraphrase of, of the Bible, putting it in language that's more easy, you know, easier for you know, people to understand than the language of the Bible. It's a, I think it's a wonderful gift. So there were a bunch of those, and a, a bunch of those versions of paraphrases, and they were called the Targum, you know, the plural is actually Targumim, but anyway, we won't get too nerdy. So one of the Targums, a popular Targum about, of Isaiah 25, rewrote this passage like this. Next slide. Yahweh of hosts will make for all people in this mountain a meal. And although they supposed it is an honor, it will be a shame for them and great plagues, plagues from which they will be unable to escape, places whereby they will come to their end. Wait, the good dinner has turned bad. What's going on? Why, why do they think it's bad? Well, then we get some commentary about this. And I know this seems really academic, but look at what people's expectations about what will be, how they shaped them. There's this community at this, at this place outside of Jerusalem called Qumran. And Qumran is where they would uh, make copies of the scriptures and they would study them. And these were, these were the super spiritual people. They had pulled away and devoted their lives to you know, the study of the scriptures and interpretation. And, and you can still visit Qumran uh, today in Israel. So there's on a scroll that was found in Qumran, there's commentary on Isaiah 25. Here's what Qumran says to try to explain why the dinner seems bad now. Qumran says, no one can attend the banquet who is smitten in his flesh or paralyzed in his feet or hands or lame or blind or deaf or dumb or smitten in his flesh with a visible blemish. And then the Messiah of Israel shall come and the chiefs of the clans of Israel shall sit before him each in order of his dignity according to his place in their camps and marches. What is that? That's dinner at the Pharisee's house. Isn't it? They brought in a guy who is smitten in his flesh to see how Jesus would respond. They're jockeying for positions because they believe that when the banquet happens, the only people invited are going to be sat in order of their importance. And they're practicing for that now. That's, that's what they're doing. What they believe about what will be is affecting what is. Hmm. All right, let's talk about what could be. Banquet number two. This is where Jesus challenges the guests and the host about how to operate at a meal. All right, first to the guests, he says this whole thing, this interesting thing. It can, you know, it reads a little funny. Like he's rebuking them for trying to get the best seat. And then he gives them a strategy for how to get the best seat. You know, that's a little ironic, um, but we won't camp on that too much. So, you know, he tells them, you know, this thing like, don't, don't take a seat that's too good for you and then get embarrassed and get pushed down. You know, go, take a seat that's too bad for you and get honored and get brought up, you know, and the, okay. But what's the point of what he's saying? To the guests, I think ultimately, if we put this in, together with all of Jesus' teaching, he is saying, you are closer to the banquet when you think yourself the worst person there. 
when you think, I'm not sure I even belong here, but I'll take the seat at the very end of the table, farthest away from the host, you know, off in the corner where I can't really see anyone and where no one can really see me, you know, that's, that's fine, you know, I'll be furthest away from the, from the, you know, the bridal party table or whatever. You know, I'm not, I don't think I really belong here. He's, he's encouraging us to start thinking in that way. I don't think I really belong here. Right, that's what he says to the guests. To the host, he says, hey, when you throw a party, a, a fancy banquet, don't, don't invite you know, your friends and family or people that you think will throw a nice party and you hope they invite you to it later. You know, this isn't, you know, I scratch your back, you scratch mine. D- don't think that way. Instead, what does he say to the Pharisee? Go out and invite, and he lists four things. The, the lame, the blind, the crippled, and the poor. Well, that's Jesus' translation of the Qumran commentary. He's literally quoting this other weird scholarly thing that seems obscure to us that all of them would know. The very people that their scholars say aren't invited to dinner, he says, invite them to dinner. Invite that group. All right, the way it could be. So um, what do we do with this? When I, when I have a, a party, I like having my family and friends there, you know? I, I don't maybe too often think about, like, who's the richest person I know? I want to invite them so that I can, you know, get to their dinners. I don't necessarily think that. But I like having, you know, I like having the people that I like there, you know, and I'm comfortable with them. And, and I, like, don't you? Isn't this weird advice? Don't, when you throw a nice party, don't invite your friends and family? Well, um, so I want to try to explain this away. I really do. So that I can keep having parties the way I like to have parties. And I stumbled upon this, um, this line from John Newton. You may know of John Newton. He wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. He was the captain of a slave trading ship, you know, before he converted to Christ. And then he took a vow of poverty and, you know, basically spent the rest of his life uh, pastoring people. But, you know, he's like the barefoot pastor. I mean, he lived, he lived in squalor, you know, t- trying to balance out the, the horrible wickedness of his life before. Um, just an amazing story. So he had these um, correspondences with people. He would write, you know, they would write him questions and he would respond with letters. And that's a gift, you know, to us in posterity. And so he's writing with one of his, you know, a, a, a person who's seeking advice, who's, who's uh, a rich person in England. And they're, you know, they're wondering kind of how to live. Uh, he tells the person earlier in this letter, you know, you, you need to spend at least as much on the poor as you do on yourself. Like, first, let that be your rule of thumb. Spend at least as much on the poor as you do yourself. And then he writes this. Let your friends who are in good circumstances be plainly told that though you love them, prudence will not permit you to entertain them. No, not for a night. What, say you? Shut my door against my friends? 
Yes, by all means, rather than against Christ, who says of the poor, inasmuch as ye did it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye did it unto me. The poor need relief. One would almost think that the passage in Luke 14, 12 to 14, you know, the one we're studying today, was not considered as part of God's word. At least I believe there is no one passage so generally neglected by God's own people. So, you know, John Newton's intense, but he's probably reading it right. I'm not going to try to explain it away. I'm just going to feel uncomfortable with it, and I hope you do too. And when we do that, we get a little taste of what could be. We get a little taste of the kingdom that Jesus is actually bringing. The one where we love our enemies, you know? the one where we love our neighbors as ourselves, the one where we pick up our cross, the one where, where uh, the, the greatest of all is the one who lays down his life for his friends. We get a little taste of that. So if you want to experience more of the kingdom right now, that's my advice to you. Let's talk about what will be in Jesus' terms. We've already heard what the Qumran and Targum think what will be. Let's think about it in Jesus' terms. He tells this parable, and it's such a fascinating parable, you know, this. So uh, here's, here's some details, some cultural details that we need to understand the parable properly. You know, there, there's this dinner, and then people have excuses why they can't come, right? Um, there's a, sort of a two-step process of inviting people to a fancy dinner. First, you invite them, and you get RSVPs, and then you prepare all the food, the, you know, according to the people who said they were going to come. And then when the food is ready, you send someone out into town to say, hey, the food's ready. Come on in for the party. So it's a two-step process. So all of these people who had bogus excuses, they've already said they'll come to the party. So that's one thing to note. I mean, it's, it's a little bit like RSVPing yes to a wedding and then not showing up, which is a bummer for the family that's paying for the food. It's maybe more in your face like like someone invites you to dinner and you're in the living room while they're finishing getting the food on the table. And then when they come out of the kitchen and say, okay, it's ready, you say, actually, I have to wash my hair. You know, like, sorry, I got to go. Um, that's kind of what's happening here. None of these, in, in Palestinian culture, in first century Palestinian, you know, culture, the, the here, here's, the deal. If you're buying land, you would have inspected it thoroughly before you bought it. If you're buying oxen, you would know all about the health and well-being of the oxen before you bought them. So these guys saying, well, I just bought this thing and I got to check it out. It's, it's, it's bananas. It's in your face. And the third guy, he doesn't even say, please excuse me. He says, look, my new wife's in the bedroom. I can't come. I mean, it's pretty, I know that's graphic, but that's what he says. This, all three of these people. So here's what's going on. If, the, if three people respond in this way, the town is conspiring together to embarrass the host. They want the host to look really bad. That's what's going on. And so the host is rightfully angry. He's furious. And so does, does he take vengeance on them? Well, not in this parable. In other parables he does. But in not, not in this one. So we're going to stick with this. 
Instead, he takes his anger and he redirects it in generosity. So his anger towards them goes toward inviting, oh, the same list of the four types of people, the poor, the blind, the lame, and the crippled. It's the same list from the Qumran thing, right? Go out and invite them in. And, and, and his servant says, I, I anticipated that's what you wanted to do. They're already at dinner and we still have space. And so he says, okay, now go out to the outskirts of town, you know, maybe to where the Gentiles live or whatever, people who are genuinely outsiders, and, and urge them to come in. You know, the Greek is like, compel them to come in. Early commentators, including Augustine, you know, who we like a lot of what he says, uh, Augustine, you know, said, hey, this is why it's okay to use violence to get people to convert. <laughs> uh, Augustine's wrong on that, and let me just state for the record, um, I, I, you know, not everything he says is good. Um, I like more recent commentators, you know, Kenneth Bailey says, there, the, the reality is at a, you know, a fancy dinner, if you're inviting people like this, they're literally thinking, what are you doing? Like, what's the, what's the trick here? You're, you're want to embarrass me at dinner somehow. Like the man with dropsy. Like, you're bringing me as a sort of something. The the joke's going to be on me somehow. They need to be compelled and convinced to know you really are a desired, honored guest at this dinner. You really do belong. So the irony, you know, at the end of the parable, Jesus says, yeah, none of the people who were originally invited will be welcome at that dinner. Well, none of them want to be at that dinner. That's what Jesus has done. He's created a party that the elites think they're too good for. And that's the way it will be, friends. Here's how I understand heaven and hell. Here's how I understand it. This comes straight from one of my favorite theologians, Shirley Guthrie. A lot of you have heard me say this a bunch of times. Heaven is for sinners, and hell is for good people. Those people who think they've got it all together, those people who think they've earned it, those people who think they don't need grace to be invited in, they can have what they want. That's that's hell. That's the occupancy of hell. Heaven is for those people who have to be compelled in. No, seriously, I know you don't think you belong here, but you can come. This is for you. That's the gospel from Jesus' standpoint. Heaven is for sinners, and hell is for good people. You know, another quote I use a lot, um, this is from my, our, our college pastor, Ben. You know, Ben Patterson, he, he used to always say the two most common questions in heaven will be, what are you doing here? And where's so-and-so? The two most common questions, what are you doing here? And where's so-and-so? Why? Because everything is turned upside down and inside out. So, friends, I don't want to find myself in a place where at the invitation to that dinner, I look at the guests inside And I say, "Ah, I'm busy. 
I don't want to go to that. I want to cultivate my heart today so that I long to be at that table. I want to long to be amongst those guests. I want the way I live now to be cultivating that desire so that I truly long for heaven. I think one of the places we do that is by coming to one table together. I think week in and week out, there are some of you in this room who aren't sure you deserve to come to this table. And there, there may be a biblical reason why you're choosing not to. That's okay. There may be something that you need to reconcile. You, you know, you may, you may say, I'm, I'm not a believer. I don't believe in this Jesus thing. So, I, you know, I'm not into that. Um, and, and that's fine. Uh, wait until those things are made right. But if you think, I am too broken and sinful, there's no way I can partake in that meal, well, then the servant of Christ is here to compel you to say, you belong at this table. And church, we are called to practice this around our tables too. Can you preview the kingdom around your table? Can you invite people into your home that are uncomfortable for you? I won't read into it if you invite me to dinner this afternoon, okay? We get to preview the kingdom around our tables. Friends, let's do that. Let's love our enemies. Let's love our neighbors as ourselves. Let's be like the Good Samaritan. Let's do it. Let's practice that. Let's be generous towards people that we don't think we'll ever get anything back from. That's how we preview the kingdom. And the more we do that, the more we long for what really is. And that's the heart we bring to that judgment day. That's the heart we bring. The host took his anger and turned it to grace. He invited the people who knew they shouldn't be invited. That's the gospel, friends. That's what Jesus does for us on the cross. He takes the anger of the Father towards sin and he turns it to a compelling invitation. On the very night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and when he had given thanks for it, he broke it and said, take this and eat all of you. This is my body which is given for you. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And whenever we eat this bread or drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord's anger that has been turned into grace, that has been turned into an invitation to you to come to this table. Mature Christianity, mature Christianity is a weird tension that we hold in our hearts where we, where we know that we are beautifully honored and invited to the dinner and we don't think we belong there. I think that's the height of Christian maturity. That's what we're going for. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you that in the face of dishonor, 
when people were turning down your grace, you then took it and offered it to me. And so my brothers and sisters here, and I pray, Lord, that as we come to this table, we would not only be the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind around your table, but we would also see opportunities to invite the version of that in our neighborhoods and in our communities and where we work around our tables too. Freely we have received. Let us freely give. We want to show the world what you're like. In Jesus' name, amen.